Welcome to E-Commerce with Coffee, a podcast powered by Amber Engine, where we share e-com secrets for brands over your favorite brew. We start with the caffeine and then leap enthusiastically into behind-the-scenes e-com insights that led to the success of our guests. I'm Nate Svoboda, and I'm about to serve you up the best. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of e-commerce with coffee. In this conversation, I get to chat with Christy Jones. She is the manager of leadership development programs at Meyer, one of the most popular supercenter chains, uh, primarily in the Midwest. And she spent the better part of the last two decades focused on helping organizations achieve success through better talent strategies that unleash the full potential of leaders, teams, and communities. So today, we're really going to be focusing in on how businesses should be thinking about their talent and bench strength, and how those coupled with positive working cultures can really set those businesses up for success long term. So Christy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nate. Delighted to be here. Really excited to have you here. Now, um, obviously, the name of the show is e-commerce with coffee. You are an extremely passionate and energetic person. I imagine caffeine must play some role in your life. Is that fair to say? <laughs> it is my life partner. Yes. So talk me through, what's your go-to in the morning? Like, what do you grab? So if I'm at home, a typical uh, caramel Nespresso pod, that's usually what I start with, and a either a caramel protein shake or just black. If I'm out, uh, Venti Pike Place, just black with room for cream, and I usually have like some protein shake with me that I've packed when I'm traveling that... I'll add, and then I feel better about coffee being breakfast. Um, it's not. 15 years, I don't think there's going to be any stopping anytime soon. And I hope not, because I love it, right? Like the holding yeah. a hot cup of coffee in the morning, it is yeah. a spiritual experience. The first sip that you take, I agree. It's it's like a loading bar almost going down as it reaches your stomach. The warmth as it goes through your body. I, I very much so feel that. Completely. <laughs> um, it, yeah, absolutely. Well, and I do love a good latte. I'm I'm a caramel latte person myself, but I you know just take a good little shot of espresso. I love that. It gets me going in the morning. Um, well, you know, we have a lot to chat about today, but I'm really interested to start out with your journey, right? You know, you've had an interesting career path. You were, for parts of you, were a teacher, you've been a consultant, you've been a corporate trainer. You know, can you give us a little bit of a walk through your background and how it landed you in the passion of organizational development? Uh, yeah, boy. Um, so I, I grew up with um, this idea of kind of Midwest hard work, um, very, very conservative family. And I watched my, both of my parents um, use all that they had, but also feel very constrained in um, what they didn't feel they had. So my, neither of my parents went um, to college or graduated from college. My dad went back years later um, when I started college, actually. Uh, and so it, I, I heard this narrative that they had to be unhappy because of something that somebody else said they didn't have. So they worked jobs that sucked the life out of them and parts of our family, um, right? Because we we have one life. A lot of the people that I work with will hear me say this over and over again. Mary Oliver, the um, celebrated poet, in the last line of her poem, A Summer's Day, says, and what will you do with your one wild and precious life? And I go back to that when I think about people saying work life and everything else that isn't work life. And I'm always reminded, you get one wild and precious life. You do work with it, but you do lots of other things. My parents, one wild and precious life, a lot was taken from the work conditions that they were in. And I don't think it was uncommon of people in their generation and what was kind of traditionally taught in business schools about leadership at the time. But I was very keenly aware that there was something that extended well beyond their jobs into our lives. And they worked really hard, right? They were just hardworking uh, people with so much talent. And growing up in that, the value of working hard meant I got my first job when I was 14. And 
you know, from that time, um, never really worked less than two jobs, right? Um, and and knew very very early on that I wanted to do something bigger and better, but I didn't have any good models of that. I didn't know what it meant to, you know, go to college. Like, what was that? That was never a story that was told in our in our family or to lead, right? Um, so as I went through high school, I had these kind of um, moments like we all have of people pouring a little bit more into us or seeing something in us and bringing that out in us that were, if I look back, kind of inflections of, oh, there's like, there was a little bit more here than I expected or, hey, I could probably do that and made the decision to do um, that the one thing that the only person in my life that had gotten some kind of a professional certification was my grandmother, who was a licensed private nurse for um, folks on the east side of the state. I was like, well, nursing, I could do that, right? I mean, how hard can it be, right? This is my, my 17-year-old self graduating from high school, and I got accepted into this um, program at a, a university about an hour north of where I grew up. And I, <laughs> I start in this nursing program and have to take, you know, more advanced science and math classes and ultimately ended up finding that they were not only really difficult for me, but they were difficult for me because I had something that was never diagnosed called dyscalculia. Um, so like dyslexia, more familiar, um, but you don't see numbers um, in the way that people who don't have that do. And, you know, I'd always, I could get through because I would work really hard, um, but you need to know exactly how much of a medicine you're administering to somebody. You need to know exactly how much <laughs> you're, you're delivering to a patient. Not a lot of room for error. No, no, not a lot at all. And um, so I, I realized in my first year and a half, that was probably not my journey. Well, at this point, I had also been working to pay for school um, at a uh, the local Avis Rent-A-Car. And it was just this great job that I could work on the weekends and in the evenings. But it also put me in front of opportunities to learn sales, leadership, uh, managing ambiguity, because when a flight didn't come in on time, you stick it out, you stay, you do what you got to do, you problem solve because we don't have cars where we need them, right? You know, so all these kind of fundamentals of um, working in different situations, because it's a bit of a unique job for somebody, you know at 18 and very quickly um, learned how to train other people to do my job. Now, let me be clear, that was out of full laziness. I wanted other people to be able to do the things that I did not find appealing at all. Well, of course, the people observing me were like, she can teach people how to do other things. That seems like and added value. Let's put her in a training role. So over time, um, I worked up to being a, a regional trainer there. While I had also uh, left nursing school, so I had more uh, opportunity to work, move into a full-time job and, and do training work. So um, loved that, but knew I needed to go back and, and go to school. Well, around the same time, um, I was getting married. I was in my early 20s. And had, I'm going to date myself significantly, but this was also around the time when the internet was coming alive, right? And there were all of these changes around technology and when they needed people to um, work in sort of data center infrastructure, new, brand new data center infrastructure, um, broadband infrastructure. So I saw an opportunity there from moving into more of a technology space to be able to communicate to people like me um, that weren't real great in understanding all of the kind of technical capabilities, but needed to have enough understanding to function within that space. Ended up going to um, work for a couple of local companies that were involved in Y2K uh, work 
and um, really bringing all of the infrastructure of technology that we enjoy today in its 3.0, iteration to life at that time. And in training and developing teams to go out and deploy large scale training that met a client need, but also was at a cost that was not um, an additional add, but was added value to whatever we were selling. And building that business case within the organization I was working with, and then also as recurring costs. And the company I worked for at the time had just rolled out this tuition reimbursement. And I thought, here's my chance, right? Um, and I had, I was working in Grand Rapids and there was this straight line of three miles from the office I worked at to the university that my dad had attended just up the street when I was born, right? So that was kind of the college that I knew about growing up. And on my lunch break, I showed up in their admissions office and I said, um, hey, like, this is what I have to offer. This is what I've done. What might I do to attend school here? Um, and started the process of getting my teaching degree. And because it was the thing that cl- most closely aligned to what I was doing and what I thought I could could do. So I kept working in the technology corporate training space for several years while I was going to school full time um, for a secondary education degree and loved, just threw myself into the work of understanding how do we learn? How does that learning inform behavior? What can I do in kind of the work world to be more effective in how I'm training either my team that was running this um, customer service and dispatch center for a technology company, um, but also what does that mean for me, right? How do I kind of leverage that in my own world. Um, so as I was going through school, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I again, connected with these people that were kind of pouring into me because I, I didn't know any better. So I would just ask a lot of questions. It was pouring into me like, Hey, you could do this or you could do that. And you, this interests you uh, go towards that. And just somebody saying or seeing in me, um, I noticed this about you. Why don't you move toward that? And I'll help you. I'll just nudge you towards that. And it was a series of things of just moving closer towards those things that seemed to really light my fire. And had the opportunity um, when I got to my student teaching, I couldn't work full time, right? Because student teaching is already a full time job during the day. And I took a break uh, to do my student teaching and had the opportunity to teach economics and social science in a rural high school fell in love, right? It was like the the two things that were coming together, like this understanding of business and how markets work and this excitement of kids. They don't know they're excited about it initially. Like they thought it was going to be this like complicated, like real awful experience. But it goes back to your question around kind of my own leadership style too. One of the things that I wanted to make sure was happening is it's not going to be an awful experience. You're going to learn, you're going to have fun. Those two things are non-negotiable. And I just completely was was hooked. And my student teaching led to a uh, role ultimately teaching middle school, which of course I said, I'm never going to teach middle school. Like a room full of 12 and 13 year olds. Are you out of your mind? (laughs) Number one, I don't like dirty things. Um, These are like little people. Uh, I want my 17, almost 18 year old high school seniors that are ready to launch into this next season of their life. That's where I'm best. Day one of my first seventh grade class, I saw these kids that were like, still had a little bit of innocence and the fear of God in them, but also like spicy and didn't know what they were doing with their arms and legs, their size and everybody up. I didn't know at the time 
But that experience was preparing me for a room full of senior leadership. Because at the end of the day, like we're all just, we're still our seventh grade selves. Sizing each other up, developing our own hierarchies, figuring our way out, right, of whatever we're in. And I loved that. Well, at the same time, as I was teaching, um, I was, I had moved to the other side of the state, um, the east side of Michigan, and my husband and my family were still on the west side of Michigan while I was teaching. And I had these clients that I had kind of held over from when I was teaching that I was doing curriculum design for and corporate training work for. And I was building really unintentionally a client base of referrals for small to mid-sized businesses that needed to upskill their teams. Um, and so through those, through those relationships, it became clear to me, um, number one, I needed to move back to West Michigan. And so I left my beloved seventh graders um, and came back to West Michigan and took the leap to start my own consulting company with a handful of clients that were built to uh, 280 clients over six years and um, really loved the journey of being an entrepreneur, of building through uh, both relationships and getting really good results and through skinning my knee a lot and getting back up a lot. Um, and then I, I sort of worked in that entrepreneurial world for about six years until um, I had my first child in 2009. I had my second child in 2010. Um, they're exactly 365 days apart. They have the same birth date. Oh, wow. Um, so as an entrepreneur in 2009 and 2010, with essentially two babies, two infants, it's not the ideal life case, right? I had gone a long way from uh, where I had seen my parents struggling that I wasn't going to. And I was now in that space where I just needed to make a choice of um, what was I going to do? So I ultimately uh, ended up selling that company and taking a year to do some independent consulting and business sort of transition work for them. And at the end of that year, I got a call from someone who said, you know, I, I have this opportunity. We're not really quite sure what um, we want to do with it yet, but if you're willing We'd love to have you come on and try to do some of the work that we're doing um, at this company. Maybe you're familiar with them. Um, it's Meyer, and you know me growing up in West Michigan. Like, of course you know Meyer. Uh, what they didn't know at the time is that um, when I was a baby, like I was three days old, and my mom left the hospital. We always had boys in our families, right? I have three brothers. They weren't expecting a girl. And uh, when I was three days old, my parents left the hospital and my mom said to my father, we're not taking her home unless she's wearing a dress. I refuse to bring her home in any blue outfit. Um, I want to get like this, the laciest, pinkest, frilliest, you know, the least, um, <laughs> the least masculine outfit this baby can go home in. I'm not going home until I have it. So we drove to what was ultimately our first super center that I grew up near. My parents bought me this dress and then they brought me home. So at the time when I had this conversation about, hey, are you interested in maybe helping us discover what's next here? Um, they didn't realize that literally before I went home, I went to a Meyer store. Uh, I'd later told that story and it's in our heritage center, um, which I'm very grateful for. But um, I said, sure, why not? I'll give it a shot. Uh, and it was all kind of designing standard curriculum work and, you know, stuff that I had had some familiarity with. And I think out of all, out of all of that, I love the emphasis on the importance of business acumen, 
right? Because I feel like so many organizations today, when they're talking about what are these skills that we need to be developing in the next generation of leaders, it's not necessarily technical skill. It's not necessarily heavy quantitative skill. It's the ability to communicate, right? It's the ability to be that bridge between the super technical people that get really in the weeds and the super high level business leaders that, you know, they don't get in the weeds and they're focusing on business outcomes and someone needs to be able to bridge that gap. And so it sounds like not only were you able to do that, but I also love that you you identified your career through the passions that you had, right? And I know I've personally experienced this. A lot of people, especially as they're in late high school, early college, they don't even necessarily know what options all are out there for them to f- perform as a job. So I feel like mm-hmm. a lot of people, when they graduate, they they start in a role and they, you know, kind of like you're talking about, right? They're just going through the motions. They're climbing the career, clatter, the career ladder, trying to do what they can. But I love that at every turning point, at every major pivot, you figured out, well, what about this am I passionate in and how can I actually use this to make a meaningful career for myself. Yeah, you know, well, thank you. I wish that that was intentional. Um, You know, thankfully, I was dumb enough that it wasn't. And I say thankfully, because um, I think I've seen a lot of people who were kind of brought up in a very structured, you need this plan at this point, and you need to be at this place. And they sort of had this destination addiction, that as soon as I get to that next destination, that'll be the fix until I need to get to this next destination and then that'll be the fix. Well, um, I hadn't, I hadn't grown up with that. So it was, it was literally just what am I most passionate about? Where can I bring the most, um, value to speak good things into whatever we want to achieve and being okay with, uh, or developing the, the resilience to fall. Um, and knowing like, all right, well, guess that just means it's time to get back up. Um, you know, it's when I came to Meyer, it was, uh, um, it was this very junior role. And I think that's, that's another piece of that, just the humility to, you know, and I didn't walk into it saying I was running my own company and I was doing all of my own things and nobody was telling me anything, uh, when they probably should have, frankly, uh, it would have been super helpful. Um, but the humility to say, if I take a step back so that I can move forward and really propel myself and my own skill, that feels right. And if it's not propelling me forward, then I get to move to whatever will. Um, you, you, get, you get to choose is one thing that a lot of people that I work with and in coaching will hear me say often, you get to choose. That's the good news and the bad news. Um, But what I did was as soon as I saw another opportunity within the organization to build out a full leadership um, curriculum and a full leadership team, and then later on growing into more of an organizational development expertise, building out um, sustainable, scalable strategies for leadership development structures and career pathing and being able to lead that charge. I mean, if I wouldn't have been willing to take that step back, I would have missed out on this extraordinary opportunity to support thousands of people in their careers um, and to build the amazing relationships and uh, kind of richness in my whole life that I've been able to do after the last decade at Meyer. Very grateful for it. And, you know, very much um, inspired by the people that I get to work with, too. Yeah. So I would imagine that a lot of I mean, a lot of their energy and passion, I mean, that's probably just coupled with yours. Right. And I can imagine that it's it's a feedback loop. Whatever you put into the system, you're probably going to get out of it. And I can imagine that's probably very rewarding. Well, it is. It is. And and it's also um, I, I will. I will definitely confess that a lot of passion is not helpful if it is not with purpose and if it is not coupled with courage. So you can get really excited about things, but if you don't know where you're directing that excitement with some laser focus, it's not very helpful. And if you don't have the courage to also show up and say, I've got a lot of energy around this and I know where I'm going. I don't know if you're going to go with me. I don't know if your skill set is particularly helpful or needed or up to the level of performance right now that it needs to be. We've got to have those tough conversations. 
Um, we've got to be able to say candidly out of trust and care and quickly, by the way, I think that's one thing I see leaders, they, they delay some of these conversations far too, far too long. Um, say, hey, here's what I notice in you. Here's where I hear you saying you want to go. Here's how you may need to change, evolve, upskill, build in some way. And here's how I'm going to support you in that. Or you said you wanted to go in this direction. This is one of the things that is familiar in my story is showing up to say like, hey, I want to be a nurse or I want to be a teacher. But other people around me saying, I don't want to, I don't want to change your plan, but I do want to call out what I notice. I don't want to change your plan, but I do want to say I care enough about you to see in you that you're really good at this thing. And I'm not sure if you know that or not, but you're really good at this. Oh, and this other thing, like you're not so good at that either. Um, so if you go towards the stuff that you're good at, that adds a lot of value that people really need and want, what would that do for you? How would that feel for you? Because I find a lot of people will continue to swim upstream in the should, right? I should do this. This is what I've been building for. This is what I've um, focused on for so long. It's what I went to school for. So I should continue on this path. Um, that's, that is not always helpful. And, and sometimes it is not only what they're doing, but they're part of a system sometimes that never um, is going to get to a place that will bring out their greatest fulfillment, their greatest contribution, or their greatest purpose. Yeah. Sometimes we have yeah. to call that out too, that kind of the cultural systems or the organizational systems in some capacity aren't allowing you to flourish, aren't allowing you to bring your best. So you shouldn't have to um, compromise, shrink yourself, you know, have your have your family and life satisfaction and fulfillment pay the price of the system that you're in. Now, sometimes we're called to disrupt that and to change that. And I've been in those positions and they're incredibly rewarding when you do. But there are other times when we've got to really reflect and kind of get quiet in our own mind and our own purpose and determine, is this, is this soil I can be planted in and flourish? Or do I need to replant myself in an environment where is better suited to me. Right. And, and, you know, I, I think that the word strategy is really been not necessarily misused, but it's kind of lost meaning to, to a certain point, I think. But, you know, obviously a big part of your role is helping now Meyer and in your previous roles, setting the, the talent management strategy, the organizational development strategy. Can you mm -hmm. talk to us a little bit about what are some components of a talent management strategy? How can a, a business meaningfully develop that strategy so that they're, they are creating soil that their teammates can or their, uh, their team members can flourish in? I cannot deliver a good talent management strategy unless there is a good business strategy. And there, there is a um, disconnect sometimes between... What is my talent management strategy? What is my business strategy? Those are those are two different things. They there is not a there is not a chicken and an egg, right? There is a very clear for me a very clear straight line between you start with your business strategy and your talent management strategy supports that. They do have to be compatible and. Um, certainly well synchronized, but if your business strategy is not sound and clear and there are um, measures and performance indicators that are defined, your talent management strategy will not be sound, right? Um, it is literally the cart before the horse. So I think one thing that you mentioned earlier around you've got to understand um, you know, business acumen. Yes. <laughs> yes. You've got to, because your talent management strategy is informed by 
what is your business strategy? Every single, this is my belief. This is not a popular belief, but it's mine. Every single person in a talent management and talent development, particularly leadership development space, ought to be very, very, very comfortable and knowledgeable and experienced in reading any kind of financial statement and being able to interpret that. That is the essence of business, right? Where at the end of the day, I love guiding people to their purpose. I love inspiring people. I love challenging people to push themselves and who they are as a leader and their teams to reach a little bit higher, to go further, to get bigger and better results. I don't work for nonprofit organizations. The intent of that is that that person and our talent management strategy is riding on the same track as the business objectives and strategy. And when they don't, that's when things go sideways, right? So can you give us, and I know there's, it's hard to come up with examples on the spot sometime, but could you give an example of a situation where a business strategy was not clear or that a business and a talent management strategy just were not aligned? Like, what does it look like when that is done incorrectly? I've asked this question recently um, because it, it right now reminds me a lot, not necessarily because of the economic conditions, although people could argue that. But this this season right now, sort of in our world, reminds me a little bit of like 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011, right? Um, coming through and then out of a significant large-scale disruption. Um, certainly from different sources, they're not the same, but it reminds me kind of behaviorally and in business um, some some very um, striking similarities. Now, one of the things that I asked then that I'm asking more now is to what end? And when I would meet with clients in that 2008, 2009, 2010 timeframe, I would ask them, you're making this organizational change and I want to support you in that. But to what end? What do you want to be true a year from now, 36 months from now. And I would ask you know, the business leader those questions. And if they couldn't articulate to me what they wanted to be true three years from now, they were probably not a client that I was going to work well with. Because what I would be doing is I would be trying to, to fit a talent management strategy to become their business strategy. And that will always be empty. So that is, that's one example of how I've sort of gone through the vetting process of, is this, is there a need here for talent management strategy or organizational change strategy? Um, or is there a need for a very different business consulting uh, insight and yeah. case here? I, I think uh, any leader, business unit leader in particular, um, the very best ones that I've worked with have been asking that question regularly of themselves and their team. To what end? What do I want to be true six months from now, 12 months from now, 36 months? And then the, the bigger step, I think, strategically is, and why do I want that to be true? Right? What's the meaning in that? What is the purpose in that? Um, because that as a leader is what you're communicating to those that are delivering tactically on that strategy, right? You're getting their buy-in and the reason and purpose behind this that I get to be a part of is X, Y, Z. Um, so that's why when we step into the talent management space of talent selection, development, engagement, retention, um, <clears throat> development, performance, um, process and metrics that has to already be within and under the umbrella of 
and there needs to be a guiding strategy. light, right? You can't necessarily develop individuals unless you know what you're developing them for, right? You can't, and you know, same, I, all of those components, I can see how that would align to it. Yeah. And now I've heard sure. you say, and this was, this is a very polarizing thing. You know, you shouldn't hire interns. Companies shouldn't hire interns. Uh, thinking through a context of like smaller to medium sized businesses, you know, why do you believe that, right? Tell us, you know, why do you believe um, organizations yeah. should engage with those who are around college age, you know, because they're looking for a role, they're looking for the yeah. experience. So sometimes I say things that just get a reaction out of people to start a conversation. That would be one of them. Um, but after the reaction, and we let that sink in a little bit, um, I think I think hiring interns, we have to do that with a expectation that is different than I think a lot of organizations have when they hire an intern, right? So here's here's an example. Um, you really have to acknowledge that when you're hiring an intern, you are building their experiences with them. They are not likely to keep those experiences with you. They are likely to take those experiences and that investment to someone else. So if you're clear on that, and if that's where you're going to invest your time, energy, and dollars, fabulous. Now, the flip side of that is that's great because what I'm going to take from them is their innovative new ideas there. So that becomes the transaction, right? They're giving me something new and different and I'm doing the same. In theory, it works great, right? Um, and you get to build your brand around a next generation. And those are, those are all great things for internship programs. But when you make the decision to bring on that intern to employee, we have to set our expectations appropriately. This is not somebody that you are likely going to retain for the next decade or the next five years. So if we are clear on that, right, that, that to me is where the business strategy clarity comes in, right? Do we want to retain this person? And to what end do we want to retain them? And the, I think we talked about this earlier too, that the, the intern process right now is changing. I mean, when, when I was in college, the intern experience was to get a job and recruiting interns was to get somebody to take that job and they would stay with you. That is not how life and careers work anymore. People are moving much more rapidly and they need to. Business is changing much more rapidly and it needs to. So let's reframe um, how we approach internship as short-term bursts of innovation that have extreme value and short-term bursts of experiences that have extreme value for the person in their career. And then the opportunity to say, these were the boundary conditions of this internship. Now what's next for you? Does it make sense that what's next for you is here for both of us? But I, I think there is a, um, there's a weirdness right now that I see around internship programs that a lot of organizations have, have figured out. I think Meyer does a great job um, at setting the expectation for interns and um, the business partners that those interns are a part of. Uh, I also think that there's this very, uh, I don't know, like uh, expectation that I'm going to, I'm going to get this internship to get this job. And sometimes when I talk to interns, I ask them, how has your internship been? And they, you know, I'll tell you, like, oh, it was really fun. I met a lot of people. And you know, these 12 weeks or these 15 weeks over the summer were really great. And I got to do a lot of new and different things. 
and then I run them through, how many new people do you think you're going to meet in the next year here? Right? You talk to an intern and that's what they're talking about. I love that for them. It's probably not the place for them to stay. Now, there's a minority of these folks and I love them when I meet them. But I talk to other folks and they'll say, you know what I've loved doing is for the last three years, I have been practicing in my mind how I would bring all of these ideas and thoughts and learning to life in a real kind of world in its natural habitat. And I have loved doing that with people that want to do that alongside me. Cool. That's the work you're going to be doing for the next year. You want to continue doing that? Um, but I, but I think if we really listen closely to the person, it will indicate, is this somebody who really is going to come on because they had an expectation that this ought to yield a job and that's my measure of success or a person who's going to come on and say, this is where I can yield the greatest kind of value back for my time and contribute that to the results that this organization is getting in a meaningful way. And I'll do that as long as it makes sense, right? Not the, the finish line, right? I think they think that's the difference, whether we're talking about interns or, or anyone, frankly, the finish line doesn't exist anymore. And it hasn't for a really long time, right? There's not this, this 20 year, 30 year retirement um, that, that it doesn't, it, it gratefully, right? It still happens at Meyer. We've got a lot of long-term team members, but we are in the minority of organizations that are experiencing, you know, multiple decade lifetime leaders and team members. And instead, I think we can replace the finish line with the purpose line. What is the thread and the line that runs through your career that's guiding you along this path of purpose and intent of your greatest contribution for an organization's greatest result? And because that's rewarding, that's fulfilling. Um, but getting away from that destination addiction, right? If I make this amount of money, if I'm in this role, if I'm, you know, reach this particular height, then that's what's going to be satisfying for me. And I, I try to reframe the finish line to the purpose line. Like, is that actually guiding you along this trajectory and this line of your um, greatest growth, your greatest purpose and contribution? And if not, let's call that out, right? And let's follow more towards or along that purpose line versus towards some kind of a finish line that ultimately um, isn't very satisfying. And, it, and if I think about that in the sense of leading and leading well, it's really tough to care deeply about the people in your span of care when your sights are only yeah. set on your own finish line. Right, but that purpose line, you get to carry other people along with you and invite other people to that. And that's exciting uh, and joyful. And the one thing that I, um, I really, I refuse to compromise on is the joy in the work. It doesn't mean you're always happy. It doesn't mean things are always great, right? But can you look at where you're at along your career path and your career journey and say, in the midst of this, am I still finding joy in the long night, in the big decision, in the relationships that I'm building, in the contribution that I'm making? Um, no, absolutely. And I'm 
I'm that's, I'm sitting no absolutely I'm sitting here dwelling podcast. on on how I can even go about doing that right because it's obvious like there are questions you can ask yourself like do I enjoy what I'm doing in this day to day do I does do I find like do I find joy from this and it's it's easy to think I feel like it's really hard to do right because there's so many people out there that don't necessarily feel actualized they don't feel like they're passionate about what they do and they don't feel like they're being empowered by the people they work for and so you know I guess other than just the basic asking yourself those questions and stopping like how do you recommend that somebody evaluates this right yeah number one you have got to be willing to make a tough decision and a tough call if you're not willing then move towards the finish line right that's going to be better for you if you're not willing to make the tough call the hard call if you're not willing to make that tough, hard call on yourself in particular, right? If you're not willing to speak out in some courage, if you're not able to take um, kind of what you're seeing around you, evaluate that and um, have tough conversations, the finish line is probably for you. It's not gonna be very satisfying, but it's probably for you, right? Um, however, if you're willing to to discover like, what is this thread that runs through my career already around my greatest contribution and my greatest fulfillment? How do those two things intersect and how do I keep moving toward that? You're going to, um, you're gonna make the tough call because you're always going to bet on yourself, right? Um, and, and I will tell people that I coach this all the time when they're, they're weighing kind of the cost and benefits of decision-making and you know, ultimately, as we work through this problem, they'll they'll end up saying something like, oh, God, I don't know if I can can really do that. Or, you know, the, the kind of the classic contemporary conversation around um, imposter syndrome comes down to. Are you willing to bet on you when you walk into that room, you feel you don't belong there? You're betting on all those other people. You're not betting on you. Right. And you better get really good at betting on you because your bets on others will never pay off. Double down on you all day, every day. And if you feel like you can't, this is kind of a bigger lesson that I've kind of learned in this last maybe five year season of, of my own journey. If you go into an experience and you feel like you can't bet on you, you've got to ask yourself some questions. Why? Do you not trust yourself? Do you not trust in your capability? If so, how do you build that self-trust? Do you feel like you haven't had the experience to really be equipped in this new endeavor? Great. What experiences do you need to start today? Because lamenting that you didn't have them yesterday will do you no good. So start now. What experiences are they? Go toward that. Do that. Um, do you feel a sense of risk for judgment or shame or um, failure? And if so, why is that? Right? Are you in a system that is more command and control, which really just capitalizes on people's insecurities, then maybe that system is not good for you. Um, or is there something else that's happening inside of you that you need to take a step forward and a step up for yourself even before you're ready? I have worked in talent management for almost 25 years in some capacity or another. I have seen people's careers soar and become you know, rich and meaningful and inspiring, I have never seen a person promoted into a role <clears throat> that they were 100% ready for. I have seen people demoted into roles, may have looked like a promotion from the outside, but really it was so easy and unfulfilling for them. It was really more of a demotion than anything, right? Just life sucking. 
but real promotion that people have prepared for, they will never feel fully ready for it. They will, and, and that's why it's important if you're going to grow your career and you are going to accept the opportunities that are in front of you to grow your career, you have to know you are never going to feel. Isn't that the, isn't like that the whole joke? Everybody thinks that everyone has their stuff together, but nobody really does. Nobody knows what's going on. Nobody knows what they're doing. You know what? After seeing lots and lots and lots of psychometric assessments from lots of leaders living lots of different life paths, I can guarantee you in my experience, that is true. Um, one thing I, I said recently was, yeah, I have a lot of things, but it all together is not one of them. And, but the acknowledgement to say in the richness, depth and experience and joy that I feel as a whole imperfect human being, I know that I don't have it all together. And I'm willing to offer that up to the world because I also know that other people don't and maybe they just need to see a little bit of that, right? Because I think once we start to see that and we start to acknowledge that, that, wait a minute, I don't have it all together, but I'm still good. I don't have it all together, but my value is immeasurable. I don't have it all together, but damn, I'm resilient. Knock me down. I will get back up. And I dare other people to do the same, right? Or I don't have it all together, but I can love deeply. I can care about the work that I am doing. I can get a great result the right way. I can see other people in where they're struggling and where they're succeeding, and I can honor both. Um, give me that over a leader who has it all together all day, every day, because that expiration date of having it all yeah, together and, is and really, really One crucial. other thing I wanted to get your, your thoughts on. So obviously, you know, part of your role is working with senior leaders at a lot of, I mean, not just, but a lot of it is working with senior leaders at these organizations. And I would imagine, you know, at a certain level, there becomes a, a level of, of pedagogy, right? People who believe that they're already an expert in something, they, they already have the tenure. So like they, you know, shut up, I know what I'm doing. Um, I guess, how do you recommend that somebody speaks to one of these individuals in a way that actually gets them to think differently, right? I feel like you could go into something and obviously someone like yourself who has all this experience, it's different than coming from a more junior team member, but sometimes that's necessary, right? You need to be able to lead and manage upwards to a degree. How do you recommend that those conversations be navigated so that the person's barriers can really come down and they can actually be challenged to think differently? The simplest, most accessible um, way that, that I start with is changing every why question to a how or what question. Um, and, and that's, that's just when we think about, particularly you mentioned sort of, um, leading up, uh, we can often want to approach things with, you know, why are we doing this? Why are you doing that? Well, if you ask me why I'm going to want to give you why? And that's likely going to be a little bit defensive, right? Because it feels accusatory. But if I can shift that question to, um, how have you thought about this problem recently? Right? I, I, why we're doing this makes no difference. What makes a difference relationally and also results-wise is how are you thinking about this problem? How can I support you in that? What is it that you need from me to see this through to fruition? Things like, um, what do you envision when we deliver on this? What do you envision will be the change for us, for you, for me? Right. And then we start to have this deeper, more rich conversation around how do we behave, which I think talent management is really all about behavior and how do we shift it? How do we get the right behaviors in the right places? And how do we acknowledge that the behavior is what we see, but everything we don't see needs to be tended to if we're going to change behavior. Um, and so I think that is, that is like the simplest, although very difficult way to approach that. Um, and I think the other thing is we don't 
we don't change people through telling them that they need to change. We don't change people even by telling them the impact of them not changing. We change people through our relational connections and acknowledging they will have to be the one that changes their behavior. So how do we bring them a mirror versus um, a hammer, right? That's, that's ultimately how people develop real change. Like, whoa, so I saw this in myself. I also saw the possibility that I could do it differently. So we, I love that about my future self and I want to move towards that versus I saw the hammer coming down. So, and you've seen people do this a million times. I saw the hammer coming down. So I knew I needed to change. Yeah, you changed to avoid the hammer coming down, but you didn't actually change because as soon as the hammer wasn't there, you are just a person who's less afraid doing the same thing, right? So I, I sometimes use this analogy of light and heat. Um, it's easy to put heat on somebody, right? They sweat it out, they feel the heat, and they feel the pressure, and ooh, this is really, really tough. Now, when people are really in the furnace, what is know? the one thing they are thinking about? You got it. Now, if you shift that from shedding light versus throwing heat, when you are in the center stage of the performance of your world and you see the spotlight, you know exactly where to be. You know that's the spot for you. You know that that is designed for you and that is your place and it feels right and good, right? That is your light. So as a coach, as a leader, as a talent management professional, how do we get to distinguish? Now, by the way, when the spotlight is on you, it also feels like there's a little bit of heat there too, but it's completely different because what do you want to do? You want to stay there. You want to stay in that light that is for you. So how do we design relationships and structures and systems and organizations where we can tell the difference between someone throwing heat or shining a light on our greatest talent? Because it is the spotlight that people want to stay in. It is not the furnace. And when people are with leaders that know how to do that and know how to do that really well, They'll talk about, I felt like I could shine, but I also felt like everybody else could too. And that meant that we were bringing our best. We were performing better. We were collaborating better. We felt much more safe to innovate. We felt much more safe to connect when one of us on a given team fell short or fell down or skinned their knee, we felt like it was safe to help them up. And those are the things that really create sustainable talent value, but also sustainable business value and, and ultimately help us reach those business objectives that we start with, right? Um, so I, I think those two things, right? Move from why to what or how and be able to differentiate and distinguish between is this heat or is this light? And, and it can be hard because when you're in the light, it does get hot. But the difference is, is, is this the light that I really can step into that's along that purpose line? Or am I just in the furnace? I want to get out as fast as possible. Or I just want right. to get out without getting so badly burned. Um, right. 
And I love that analogy. That's I mean, I've, I've never heard it put that way, but it's it's you're right. I mean, when you're in the spotlight, it's a little bit warm, but it's very different than than having that direct heat applied to you constantly. And I mean, I can even you know, in my short career, I can think of situations where both of those were happening and and how I reacted differently to that. So I, I appreciate how easy it is to, to really to really grasp that. Um, well, you know, Christy, this personally, I'm feeling very energized from this conversation. I mean, I'm already thinking about some of the ways that I can use what we've talked about in, in my own personal and professional life. But so for the listeners of ours who maybe we've struck a chord with them, maybe they're interested in possibly reaching out to you on LinkedIn, if you're comfortable with that, how could um, how could someone get in, in touch with you? Yeah, LinkedIn is great. Um, that is definitely the the place that I would I would love to hear from the perspective and the challenge of people because I know there certainly are different perspectives on all of this. Um, and I love that dialogue and interaction and the challenge of ideas. You know, I, like I said, I embrace of all the things I have, it all together is not one of them. And um, that's where the good stuff happens, I think, in the, the dialogue of ideas and understanding and hearing about other people's paths. So I love that. Yeah, LinkedIn. Couldn't agree more. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Christy. Hopefully we'll be able to have you on in the future for another conversation, but I hope you have that. a great rest of your week. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode of e-commerce with coffee powered by Amber engine. If you haven't gotten your fix yet, be sure to get more e-commerce brand secrets on our website at amberengine.com. And don't forget to subscribe for more episodes.